Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, he's a good friend of the program. We're glad to have him back. His friends call him Gary, but on his driver's license, it says Gary and Frankel because it's all fancified like that. How are you, sir? Great to have you back on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Oh, we're living the dream, man. This is romping in the high cotton here. Um, you're writing in Ordinary-Times.com a publication of notes that uh, here's what you did. And I like when you do this, we took a issue that's really loud, turned down the noise. You went to a historical example to try to deal with what we saw with the speaker of the house fight. And now the rules committee package that's gone through and all the various committee assignments. We're watching what's going on in Congress. Well, this is the 118th Congress. We've done this 118 times. Well, right around that ninth or 10th time you went back to that as an example, then maybe some of the folks in Congress now could maybe learn some. And it's a name that people kind of don't think about because his dad was more famous than he was. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at the career of John Quincy Adams, he's most famous for having a presidency that was meh at best. But what you really have is decades of dedicated public service by somebody who truly cared about his country, but maybe just wasn't particularly suited to an executive role. But when you look at his service within the cabinet as Secretary of State, when you look at his time about as a diplomat traveling around Europe, and most importantly, I think, when you look at his almost two decades uh, in the House of Representatives and his older age, you find quite a bit to glean because even with you know the different society, the different moral values, uh, different policy issues, people are still people. Conservatives are still conservatives. I think there's a lot that you can learn from. Gary and Frankel joining us. Okay, let's start right there though, because the terms have changed. What yeah. a conservative now and what one back then was, they didn't really use that term, but they had things like federalist, um, they had things like people that were in the Constitution. They had people that were following Jefferson. They had people that followed Adams. They had people that followed different founding fathers. They had their own cults of personality, just like we do now with our political figures. There was a lot going on there. John Quincy Adams, of course, has got the added problem of he's just he's not only in got one of those names. You're John Adams' son. That's got a little bit of weight to it, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. He struggled with that throughout his life. Um, obviously, you can't diagnose someone who's been dead for almost 200 years. Uh, but a lot of scholars seem to think from his diary entries, from some of his letters, that he may have struggled with chronic depression. And for somebody who felt that they had the weight of the world on their shoulders, that must have been really hard to deal with. But um, much like his father, in fact, Quincy looked at all of the cults of personality that were surrounding him. He looked at the party man sort of environment and said, no, I'm going to go my own way and do what I think is right. Yeah, Gary and Frankel. Before we lionize him too much, because I do think there's something to really take from his congressional career, and we'll lay that out in just a second. This was a different era, you know, where especially his congressional career, where you're talking about, you know, the, the turn of the century, the 1800s, his presidency into the 1820s and 1830s. We're starting to get into the national issues that lead to the Civil War. We're talking about things like slavery, like the North is growing faster than the South, which is more agriculture and the North is becoming industrial. A lot of the things that shaped our country for the next hundred years through the Civil War, through the Reconstruction, he lived to see that stuff. But that also meant he had some flaws, not just as a man of his time, but just, you know, he was a human being. He had problems. So before we lionize him, there's some issues here as well we got to address. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, one of the commenters on the uh, Ordinary Times article did a really good job of pointing this out. Um, he, for most of his life, and I focused much of my article talking about the slavery issue, for most of his life, Quincy made it clear that he was an abolitionist to a certain extent, but he was worried about his friendships. He was worried about his relationships. He was worried um, about what the political consequences of standing too harshly against slavery would be from both a personal and a broader standpoint. So this was not a stand that he always took. It was a decision that he cons that he consciously made later. But one thing I think is important is that when people do make mistakes, when people do become victims of their time and circumstance, or perhaps even their personal failings, and then turn around later in life and become what they should have been all along, there's something worth studying there. And if you dismiss somebody's actions entirely based on what they did in their youth or what the values present in that society were in particular, then there's very little that you can learn from history in general other than just patting yourself on the back and saying how much better you are. Yeah, Gary and Frankel. One thing you pointed out in the piece here, this is kind of unique in American history. He went to Congress as his retirement job. He actually called it his retirement job in his own personal writings. This is after he's been president. Look, he could have just sat there, punched the clock, not done a whole lot, got reelected probably for life and so on and so forth. The lesson you're drawing here, though, is that's not what he did, though. Exactly. Um, and he made a point of really leading the fight against slavery for the first time as for the first time in his life um through his presidency and that keep in mind that was decades of public service at that point he started becoming a public servant when i think he was 13 um he had mostly been in the background of that debate whenever it did come up he made it clear in his personal communications and his private writings that he was against slavery and that he abhorred the practice but he was not on the front lines leading the fight against it for political or social, perhaps economic reasons. It would have caused some strife with his family um, because his wife and her family had a background in slaveholding. But he did not choose to go quietly into his retirement. That was, if anything, when he was most active in a broader sense because he felt empowered to finally fight for causes that he believed in. Yeah, Gary and Frankel. It's interesting because when you started drawing the comparison to the today, um, we talk about the grifter class. You know, I've been joking about um, the hardcore right that made so much noise and speak. I've been calling them the raucous caucus just because I like the alliteration of it. But it's fun. You know, they're, they they just they're chaos makers. They're crazy yes. makers. I get pushback sometime on social media about using the term grifter for certain people. I use it for people that I think deserve it, who are clearly, you know, using a business model. Here's the thing. Grifters aren't new. And his 17 years in Congress, along with abolition and some of the other stuff, John Quincy Adams spent a lot of time on what we would now call grifters of his day, didn't he? He did, because he needed their votes in order to get what he wanted passed, which was a, a repeal of the gag rule, which prevented any discussion. Uh, of slavery, he needed them on his side. So, and this is something that he really struggled with in his lot of his a lot of his private writings because he had a what he considered to be a moral virtuous purpose in mind, but he knew that he would have to play politics and convince people who were only out to increase their own power. It was just narrow self interest. He had to get them on his side somehow, and that meant that meant making promises that he may or may not have been able to keep. That meant um, having to play ball on some other issues that maybe he wasn't quite comfortable with. Um, the legislature in general is ugly. And in order to get stuff done, you have to roll with the punches sometimes. And it, it, it hurt him some and may have caused a flare of his depression at some point. Yeah. And you touched on it in the piece in this way is that, look, this is, take the politics out for a second. This is basic human stuff right here. This is deep philosophy, kind of how do you live your life stuff. He talked about it. He's talking about, look, I understand the human heart, including my own, is deceitful and wicked, but we have this virtuous goal, but we have to go through politics to achieve those goals. This is a universal principle that whether it's, you know, 1823 or 2023, this is the same stuff we're still struggling with. 
Absolutely. And one thing that I think is important at looking at these types of universal principles, especially as they apply to people in the past who considered themselves to live by those principles, is that most, if not everybody, is going to fail at at least some point. Maybe there's no chance for us to ever be perfect at it at all. Um, there's been considerable debate about that concept in philosophy for thousands of years. But whether or not it's possible to be perfect in a virtuous sense, there's some pretty strong agreement that it's worth pursuing. And even if you fail and you struggle as you're pursuing it, that doesn't make the pursuit any less worthwhile. So I think it's equally worthwhile to look at people who made an honest effort in that pursuit, even if they didn't live up to even their own expectations, much less so of modern society, which has very different values in some instances. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Yeah, Gary and Frankel joining us. Let's go through the history of this a little bit because I think there's another universal principle here. People know about, you know, Lincoln freed his slaves, Emancipation Proclamation, right? We know Reconstruction was a mess, uh, was not handled correctly. We'll be real kind and just leave it at that. And that led to this Jim Crow, which led to the Civil Rights Movement, which led us to where we are today. These things all happened in a sequence. The sequence before the Civil War that we don't talk about as much, and before you get to the Civil War, and before you get to Dred Scott, and before you get to even something like Amistad, which is known because of the movie and such, before all of that, there was a fight over this gag rule. Why was that so important? Because it's hard for us to understand the House of Representatives was not allowed to discuss slavery. That sounds amazing, but if you don't have that fight, and John Quincy Adams and others don't have that fight, none of the rest of that that led up to emancipation happens. Walk us through that, because that's an important piece of history that I don't think we talk about enough. Exactly. Um, everybody knew from the very beginning of this country that slavery was going to be a controversial issue. Um, that's why they wrote into the Constitution that they would just leave it for 20 years and then push the problem over to 1808. And then after that, you have debates run up every five or 10 years. Sometimes the slavery issue would take a backseat to particular military or economic matters, but it was always there. It was always the elephant in the room, and nobody really liked talking about that because there was a broader interest in economic development or preserving the Union. Uh, during the Jacksonian era, era, you have that massive fight over the bank, uh, which continued into the early part of the Van Buren presidency, but it's in the Van Buren presidency that things really start coming to a head on the slavery issue. And the gag rule was instituted in, in an attempt to sort of replicate what happened during the Declaration of Independence and the Constitutional Convention and just push it another decade or so, make it somebody else's problem. Uh, we don't have to talk about this right now. But for those like John Quincy Adams, who saw slavery as um, correctly as this horrible moral wrong, just pushing it off to the side and making it somebody else's problem was just not acceptable anymore. Yeah. There's another one of those universal principles is kicking the can down the road on an important issue always makes it worse. Yep. Gary and Frankel joining us. Here's another piece of that history that people lose and especially the lost cause movement. And people, <laughs> this came in towards, you know, Quincy, let's talk the 1830. If you look at history through the 1830s, once the gag order came down through the beginning of the Civil War in 1861, the slavery laws in the North got lax and lax, and there was a lot of abolition and the movement. And in the South, they started getting worse. 
they started taking away the legal right to emancipate slaves. They took a, they had court fights in the Carolinas that the Quakers couldn't come in and free people legally. That's part of this history too, is like, there was an after effect to this was like, oh no, the people that want it fought harder and the people that wanted to keep slavery kept fighting too. This wasn't an inertia thing. This was an active fight. Yeah, and it was a brutal fight at that. Um, you don't get something like Bleeding Kansas, for instance, for instance, between two groups that are having a mild disagreement with one another, even if it's on some kind of moral issue. You get Bleeding Kansas from something that's deeply fractious for something that concerns some of our innermost moral values. And in the case of the South, an exploitative economic system that they desperately wanted to preserve because they incorrectly saw no other option. I'm, they were wrong. Adam Smith proved even before the United States was a thing that slavery made you poor, but the South saw no other, no other option. They had self-interest. They wanted to keep their property. They wanted to keep their de facto aristocracy. And when they saw the North making a moral argument against that, that only hardened their resolve. And it was just this brutal, bloody history that as much as we talk about it, as much as we recognize it, still gets somewhat lost about how bad it really was. Yeah, Gary and Frankel. Okay, let's come back to the present tense because that's why you kind of went backwards in time. Talk about the Congress as we have it. Um, I think we're both realists. We understand this is going to be a contentious Congress. We have a split House and split Senate between two parties. We have a presidential election. I think there's going to be a lot of fighting, a lot of gridlock, and a lot of things not getting done. So I don't think they're going to learn the lessons. But if they wanted to learn the lessons, what would the lessons be here? The lessons would be that if even just a few people act purely on principle, that they, to a certain extent, are going to get something that they want or something that they think is right. Um, one example I used in the comments of Ordinary Times, um, look at Chip Roy. Chip Roy, people either love him or hate him. But regardless of what you think about Chip Roy, Chip Roy does what Chip Roy thinks is best because Chip Roy has certain moral values that he thinks that Congress and people in general should be pushing towards. And because he was so resilient in that, he got concessions from McCarthy that probably would not have been there otherwise that will alter the way that the House operates for the next two years. And I'm not saying that everybody should be Chip Roy or that Chip Roy was correct in this instance, but if you act in that sort of way and you think about higher principles as opposed to whatever will benefit me for the next five seconds as a representative, then you are more likely to accomplish what it really is that you want. And I think a lot of uh, what I like to call the grifter consortium um, has forgotten about that because they're only thinking about the next 10 minutes. They're only thinking what will get them that Fox News head or that lucrative fundraising deal tomorrow, but they're not thinking about what's going to happen a year, two years, five years, 10 years down the line. And that harms not only the country, it obviously harms the country, but it, it harms them too. It ironically ends up being destructive for their self-interest. Yeah, Gary and Frankel, we've been beating up on our GOP friends a little bit. Let's talk about our Democratic friends for a second. Look, they looked good by just sitting there and being quiet and letting all this chaos go on, right? So they, they got an easy layup here. What lesson are they learning as they watch this contention? Because, look, they've, they're they going to have a good look at getting the House back, especially if this is chaotic for a couple of years. What lesson are they learning as they're sitting here? Do you think they should take away from all this? The lesson that they're learning, and I think this is a lesson from um, Van Buren, who I've also written quite a bit about, um, as opposed to John Quincy Adams, but I think that they're learning that party unity is important above all else, and that you can have your debates, you can have your internal squabbles, but they need to be uh, behind closed doors. And once you get to that public-facing area, wherever it is, if it's on TV, if it's within the House, if it's on C-SPAN, whatever, that they have to represent a united, cohesive front, because otherwise they look just as bad as the Republicans do right now. Yeah, and Nancy Pelosi did a really good job of that in her two terms. We'll see how Hakeem Jeffries does helming the ship over there. Love 
Gary and Franco always love having historical perspective on modern events, giving us a little bit of, you know, not a guide, but some guardrails on how to approach this stuff going forward. Let folks know where they can follow you, keep up with you, what you got going on. You're another one of our great young voices contributors. You do a lot of writing on history and education and things like that. Let folks know how to keep up with you until we get you on Herd Telegate, my friend. Absolutely. I'm most active on Twitter at F-R-A-N-K-E-L-G-A-R-I-O-N. Gary and Frankel, his friends call him Gary. We just call him a good friend. Thanks, buddy. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Yes, sir. to her tell okay amanda griffiths is back we weren't planning on having her back this quick but she got caught up in all that holiday travel stuff with southwest airlines and when we went hey we should talk to her about this southwest airlines thing amanda how are you i would ask how your holidays are but we kind of already blew the plot on that one you know i'm i survived and uh yes i am i am here i am in one piece i am processing uh but yes i'm i'm, I'm here and uh, how are you my friend Doing well, hanging in there the best. Okay, we got to do some disclosures here. I started my professional career out in air transportation, so I actually have a background in this stuff. I semi-know what I'm talking about on it. You're a world traveler. You've been all over the place. In fact, the last three times I've interviewed you, you've been in a different place all three times, so congratulations on that because you're in the middle of a cross-country move in the holidays. So you've traveled a lot. I've traveled a lot. A lot of folks are listening. A lot of people just saw this on the news and went, what the heck happened with Southwest Airlines? Now, I know some of this because there was some known issues, but start with your experience with it because you are in amongst and caught up in this mess that everybody else was seeing on TV. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, over the past two years, discovered how wonderful Southwest is, and I was, a, I am, I remain a Southwest stan. Um, if you do not fly Southwest, you are lying to yourself about uh, what you're getting when you pay for air travel. Uh, Southwest is usually the, mo the least expensive airline. They were sane during all of the crazy masking stuff. Uh, they have, again, their, their service with their flight attendants is fantastic. Um, and yeah, no, they don't give you the perks of having a TV in front of you, like a little screen in front of you, but you got your own screen in front of you. You got your phone, you got your tablet, you got your computer. So I don't see the big deal. Uh, airfare is the very, very, very cheap. You pay a couple extra dollars. You get the priority seating. I have the specific rows that I love. It's all great. And you get the two free check bags. So I stand for Southwest always. So I was going to uh, fly basically back to California. Uh, I am moving now to Madison, Wisconsin. Right now I'm in D.C. just briefly from my, visiting my parents. Uh, I was going to fly from Florida, visiting my sister, to LA on Southwest, finalize my move, and vacate my apartment, vacate date being uh, three days after this flight. Everything was all set. Everything was booked for the move. Uh, and so I had uh, three days. And when I, that I've had very few issues with Southwest up until this point, the worst thing that happened was they lost my bag. And uh, at one point, and it took 20 minutes for my bag to get there on the next flight. And I got about a $200, $300 travel voucher, no harm, no foul. It was honestly, it was a little bit weird at Tampa and the airport because they had multiple flights at the same terminal. I very quickly realized that there were people waiting to fly to Pittsburgh who'd been there since five in the morning. Honestly, at this point, we were thinking this was an issue with the Tampa airport, you know, having things go wrong with the gates more than it was a Southwest issue. Come to find out that on my flight, uh, there was a crew member, we were one crew member short, so we couldn't fly technically by sheer stroke of luck, 
another crew member that was off duty was scheduled to fly on that flight. She volunteered to work. And then it took their system a little while to recognize that switch, that, uh, you know, uh, that, that hour switch. Now, now we know that this was in fact the problem with Southwest's system was that it was not booking the right number of crew members uh, and flight attendants and all of that for various flights. Um, their entire system needed an overhaul, has needed an overhaul. And this was the reason that all these flights were getting canceled. It's just that there weren't enough crew members and they couldn't fly based on these regulations. And we were up in the air and I was trying to figure out since there had been a delay, whether I was gonna make my connection in Vegas. Of course, in-air Wi-Fi is always spotty, but I kept seeing that my connection was canceled, although I'd never gotten a text from Southwest saying that. And I was looking at all of these other very, very high traffic connecting flights from Southwest and Vegas to see a, if those were canceled too, B, if this was even accurate or if this was another system glitch, what was going on? I kept seeing that all of these flights were canceled. And I asked the flight attendant about that. And she said, yeah, we radioed the ground and they said their system is showing the flights are canceled, but we don't know anything up here in the air and they barely know anything on the ground. I, not thinking he could actually fix anything, but just kind of trying to figure out what was going on. And because he was actually gonna come out and, and assist me with, with the move, cause he's my dad, I texted my dad and my mom and I told them what was going on and asked if they, you know, if they saw any new information, maybe on Twitter or something, cause I wasn't getting any, anything. And they didn't know any more than I did. So I was sort of updating them in real time once we landed in Vegas, the pilot still hadn't told us anything. No one had said anything about connecting flights. They had just said, check for your gates. They didn't say it because they didn't know. I don't think that the flight attendants didn't know. And all of these flights were canceled from Southwest. Indeed, because of the snafu, there were uh, typically, you know, I, I, I've been calling my dad in the panic. I've never been to the Vegas airport before. My my dad was saying, well, they'll, they'll accommodate everyone. They have a duty to accommodate all these travelers. And maybe they'll, put, they'll book you, if nothing else, they'll book you on another airline. You're going to get to Los Angeles tonight or tomorrow. You're going to have to. Because, again, I had to vacate my apartment in a couple of days. Uh, or else I was going to pay for another month's rent. <laughs> Literally, I was. And I was going to have to rebook my pod. I was going to have to rebook my movers. All of this stuff. I got down to bag claim. Well, first of all, I couldn't find this. No one could find the Southwest desk, the Southwest th service desk. And there was a service representative from Southwest that I finally, I finally found him. And he looked so flustered. There were people crowded around him. And he was trying to explain, as you do when you're in a complete meltdown and you have a million plans at once and you're just kind of an agent of one of those plans and you're doing what you've been told, but you don't know there are a thousand other contradictory plans going on at the same time, which was clearly what was happening with Southwest. Uh, you know, people were trying to fix something that was falling apart in real time. They were trying to fix it in a thousand different ways. And those thousand different ways were all bumping up against one another. This guy, this human being, this service representative was standing on top of a bag scale uh, and, and saying, this line is only for refunds. If you get a refund, you will be booked on uh, on another Southwest flight, but we don't have any flights for three days. So there goes my plan to get on the Southwest flight tonight. Then I start looking at other airlines. And I, actually first, at that point, I was on the phone with my dad who did not believe me that there were no Southwest flights, that I was not gonna be rebooked on a, on a Southwest plane. And I just held up the phone so that he could hear the service representative say, 
this is only for refunds. You're, if you get a refund, you're gonna be booked on the next flight. I shouted out through the crowd, what about our bags? Where are our bags? Um, and he then directed us to bag claim saying that if we had landed here, our bags would come in on bags on the various you know bag carousels. Well, Vegas bag claim is across the street from the main terminal. So I walked out freezing cold <laughs> with limited uh, limited coatage since I'd flown in from Florida and uh, and found no bags of mine. Instead, they had about 10,000 bags that they were dropping uh, from all their grounded flights that had been due to route through Vegas. And they dropped a later southwest to Long Beach flight, but not mine. So I was without a bag. For whatever reason, there was a southwest agent who, there was a southwest manager who took pity on me and devoted kind of devoted a team to or some members of his team to finding my bag specifically which they could not do so i gave them the description i gave them the numbers i gave them my name for hours and hours we were searching for these bags couldn't find them he tells me i'm not sure they ever got loaded on in tampa there were no flights going out of vegas there was no flight to anywhere near Los Angeles on any class, on any airline for three days at that point. And the cheapest option was a $2,500 cab ride uh, that involved a $1,500 down payment uh, that I made in the cab yard. Um, with an awesome cabbie, I learned that not all cabbies are union fans and not all cabbies belong to unions. But the best that I got was that uh, that one Southwest manager named Eddie, uh, who again, tried to get his team to find my bags, God bless him. And a, uh, a kind of maternal Southwest employee who at the end of the night when I was explaining my situation that I couldn't get a hotel, I couldn't book another flight, I couldn't wait two to three days, I had to be out of my apartment and move across the country. I had been stoic up until that point and then she looked at me and said, oh honey, and gave me a big mom hug and that's that's when the waterworks came. Um, but I got the cab uh, and I got back to LA and <laughs> I'm working on getting back my sleep now, <laughs> but uh, every day has felt like a year since then. Um, and I still believe in Southwest. So I still, I, I booked my returning flight to DC on Southwest and I had a great experience. So I'm, I'm happy to talk about how Southwest redeemed itself as well. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. 
You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Joining us. Okay, that's your experience as the passenger. Let me tell you, as the guy who knows a little bit about air transportation, why that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on my Twitter feed. I'm not made you can go back a couple of years. I've said this before. I adamantly avoid Southwest, not just Southwest. I'm not just picking on them. Discount carriers, I usually don't fly them. And it's for the same reasons that bit Southwest here. So I'm just going to, and I don't want people's eyes rolling the back of the head because air transportation is a very, like aviation is a very nerdy thing to have to talk about. It just is. Um, in a nutshell, here's what happened. Southwest exponentially grew over the last 20 or 30 years. Okay. It, it just has, it's still a discount carrier, even though it's a very, very big, probably the biggest of the discount carriers, at least domestically. Um, com- I think it's second to Ryanair internationally, as far as discount carriers go. Here's where the problem with Southwest airlines goes. The company grew, but they didn't change as they grew. So they're still running it business wise as if it's about a third of the size that it is. Because again, it's a discount carrier. They're trying to keep costs down. They pass those costs to you, the consumer. You get the cheaper tickets and things like that, but there's trade-offs. And the biggest one of those trade-offs is they do not have an interline agreement. They they have made a lot of money by quote unquote going it alone. And it's worked for them. And as they grew, going it alone worked. Because the interline agreement wasn't that big a deal. What is an interline agreement? Let me nutshell that real quick. The interline agreement is if you take Delta, United, uh, American, whatever the airlines that are in interline agreements, if you get bumped off your flight or you lose your bag, they do what's called first thing smoking is the jargon for it, right? So your bag, regardless of the airline, would go on the next plane going to that destination because they have an agreement between the airlines to honor the paying customer, even though it's from a different airline. That goes for a ticket to get on a different airline, and it goes for your bag to get forwarded. Southwest Airlines does not have those agreements. So what happened there when Denver went down, which is one of their major hubs, and you had the unfortunate problem of flying from east to west, so you were flying into the problem, whereas a lot of those folks were trying to fly out of the problem. When Denver went down, there was a cascading effect that basically shut down their whole system to the point that 90% of their flights stopped. There's no flight to put your bag on. And that's why the baggage thing got so bad. Now, you got lucky and got a flight out and then wound up in Vegas where you could at least drew it. Look, I used to live in Vegas. McCarran's one of the best run airports in America. I live there. I know. I've done that drive to L.A. a couple of times. So I know that one, too. I've been but a passenger in that drive, but I was not sober. And so someone was yeah. suggesting that I rent a car. And I was thinking last time I did that, I was an undergrad. I was on at least one substance that I can remember. And that's, that's all I can remember. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good, you know, I went to Compton and picked up my vehicle when I moved to Vegas because I was moving from uh, Europe. I mean, that that going from Vegas to Compton, that's a haul. So I've done that. And then I went to Long Beach and did the tourist stuff while I was down there. I took my cousin and stuff. So I'm with you. I've done that literal drive specifically. Point is, I make a decision not to use discount carriers. And when I use a discount carrier like a Southwest, I always fly, you know, carry on only if I do that because of the interline bagging situation and because of the thing i just know their system look anybody that knows anything about aviation news that was southwest airlines this was going to happen sometime it was inevitable and a lot of people are going well we knew this was coming at some point this is when it just happened to happen and of course it happened during the holidays because stress broke their system i think you'll see southwest changing look i don't want southwest to go out, out of business i don't want them that's not what i'm getting at i just as a consumer made a decision that i I just as a consumer made a decision that I'm not going to do that because I knew that their system wasn't, you know, sustainable and my time is precious to me. I pay extra money to get where I'm going on time when I say I need to be there. Right. That's me. But you're saying and I think Southwest is going to change a lot of things. They're even talking about doing interline agreements now. That's how drastic, you know, they took a huge they took a huge hit here. They took a major PR hit. Remember, they put the they put that heart symbol on their logo for years for a reason. They're supposed to be the airline that cares about you, right? That veneer is gone now, so they're going to have to change. So here you go. After all that buildup, we talked about the problem. I told you what happened. You experienced it. Go ahead and give me your apology for Southwest Airlines. 
my apology for Sarah's Office Airlines is exactly that. They redeemed themselves. And uh, I think that, first of all, this this was so public. This debacle is so public. Look, it's not going to be because Pete Buttigieg is writing them to fix themselves and to make sure that they're held accountable and all of that. They're holding themselves accountable. Southwest does, you know, pride itself on its award-winning customer service. That fell through an epic fashion as again, it tends to, and it, it, we, we have those moments, right? There was a, it sounds so dumb, but it was the moment where I, I looked and I saw that customer service representative standing on top of the bag scale, trying to explain that people weren't going to get on their, on, they weren't going to get a flight out of Vegas. And I saw a person and I don't personify airlines. However, what I saw was someone who was incredibly stressed and someone who was in a similar situation as I felt like I was in for the past month of trying to juggle all of these things and not knowing what the next shoe that was going to drop was, but knowing that it would. Southwest has already made some changes and I got on a flight. Uh, I was able to change my flight for free to book my return flight out of Los Angeles for free um, on an airline that had a stop but no no plane transfer. I swapped stories, horror stories, uh, with the flight attendants and the crew about our mutual uh, our mutual hell week <laughs> that we just endured. And they were incredible people. Uh, they're you know they're working on reimbursing people for really just about anything. I think Southwest has already made efforts to redeem itself. The fact that they did recover so quickly, and yes, every every airline still has cancellations, but their cancellations went back down very quickly, even after this meltdown. I think because it's been so public, because they are a private business, you know, even if they are in a, you know, a carrier, um, they are more able to make those changes. And I, there was already talk about them doing that uh, interline agreement with Spirit. I know that for a fact. So I'm going to wait and see and be cautiously optimistic. But Southwest has done a great job and has done much better than any of the other major carriers could or would have in this kind of situation you mentioned, precisely because they're still so, I mean, they're still so small, relatively speaking. And because those major carriers are major carriers can get away with a lot more. I've never had a problem with Southwest that Southwest has not ultimately been able to fix and has been able to fix very, very quickly. Uh, I got my bags back. I got my bags back in a couple of days, which is incredible considering the volume of this crisis for them. Uh, and again, I gave them a second chance. So things get put into perspective, I think, a lot, especially when you're dealing with your own dumpster fires. Uh, and I certainly was. But I've seen Southwest rally, and they rallied quickly. So again, it's kind of a touch and go, watch and wait. But I still recommend that people fly Southwest, especially now, because A, I think that a lot of people are going to be hesitant. So you might get some more open seats. Uh, and B, Southwest is freaked out. This is a great time to take advantage of the fact that an airline is going to be making changes and be extra nice to you because they're really freaked out. It's like the boyfriend or the girlfriend who knows they just messed up ethically and is going to be really cool to you for at least a little bit uh, and sort of lets you have your own moment. So go fly Southwest. Maybe, maybe, yeah, take, take your advice, Andrew and fly uh, carry-on only, but uh, but I still stand and I still believe in Southwest and uh, I have reason to. said something important there um amanda griffiths joining us this was not a employee failure problem no um, no from somebody who has worked ramp 
that's the people that are under your plane for those of you that don't know who's done ramp services who's done that sort of work this was not a people failure this was a leadership failure because the software failed because it hadn't been updated in almost 20 years this was a leadership failure and a infrastructure failure this was not the employees didn't know what to do and that sort of thing they got overwhelmed by circumstances that was built up we, what one of the core values of our shows is things do not happen in a vacuum they happen in a sequence the sequence of events at southwest i just told you listen when i was still in the air force studying airlines and how to do stuff we joked about southwest not being ran well and that was almost 20 years ago now okay these problems were known it's how they made money but that was the calculation is look we're on the knife edge we're going to make money doing this but at some point we're going to get burned it got burned i think they'll have a change of leadership and i think they'll change how they do things now um they'll probably partner with some other low-cost carriers like you know the alaskas and the frontiers and those sorts of things we'll see what happens here's where i want to leave this though there was this thing where people you mentioned uh secretary pete Buttigieg, secretary of transportation people tried to rope him into this i'm no pete Buttigieg fan um however no this was not his fault and plus you want to be real careful going with the hammer of well, why doesn't this major government agency come in and fix this the airline industry is one of the most regulated government things ever and a lot of those regulations are way archaic out of date from the 70s and even the 50s and 60s if you if, go read the gate rules if you think southwest is bad with its systems wait until you get to a government system wait until you get it, to a government uh, system running this is actually this is a lesson in why a lesson in why uh, there should, uh, you know, we should have smaller infrastructure, more the decentralized infrastructure. Southwest is a private industry version of that. I'll give you a good example. A friend of mine's getting ready to retire from the military after 23, just short of 23 years of service. And he made the joke to me. He goes, yeah, when I was training, they were telling me about this system they're getting ready to replace. And I had to run my retirement paperwork through that exact system. So these things don't work well, but Having said all that, um, be careful asking for the government to come in and regulate something that's already badly regulated. And I do mean badly, as in not maliciously, just inertia over the decades. They haven't cleaned up old regulation. They haven't changed the, how the gate systems work. They haven't changed how the flag carriers operate. That's a specific legal term. I won't bore everybody with that. Don't just automatically scream for the government to do something. The market's going to fix this one because Southwest, if they're going to survive as a company, is going to have to make this up, like you said. I don't think you want to start screaming for the government. And I get so I get so tickled. These people are like, Pete Buttigieg doesn't know what he's doing as transportation secretary. Why doesn't he do something about this? Like, you do realize those are not congruent things, right? If he doesn't know what he's doing, you don't want him jumping in and doing something. That's silly. That's reactionary. Don't do that. I do have a suggestion for Southwest, though, as a customer. This was something that my dad gets, I believe, from American. Uh, who, he flies with American Airlines. Your bags have been loaded, text message. Uh, basically, bags, when they're scanned, and this can, this, there's no reason this can't happen. Southwest, love you guys. Uh, there's no reason that this can't happen. We've got the, uh, the customer's phone number. You got the customer's bag claim scan tech. All that needs to happen, it gets on the plane, you scan it, customer gets a text, it says your bag has been loaded on this flight. You don't get the text. And yeah, what might happen is they might, you know, some person might not check their text or the text might not go through, but it's a little bit of redundancy that, that can really pay off. Uh, little things like that, those things make a difference. And I completely agree with you, Andrew. You hit the nail right on the head. I mean, if we see that this happens with Southwest, Southwest has this outdated system. They have this outdated infrastructure. I could tell you about all the reasons that we can't we can't do rare earth material, rare, rare earth metal mining, because we have these regulations that were written when when hair metal was still popular. And, and we say that it's not safe to do this rare earth mining because people aren't abiding by 1980s regulations. This type of thing is rampant at the federal level. When we see it in the private market, we make the mistake very often of calling on the federal government to fix it when that would make the problem exponentially worse. And yeah. so once again, you listen to the customers, you listen to your people, uh, and, and you fix the broken dated systems.
Yeah, Amanda Griffith joining us. I agree with you on that. Uh, I would love to continue to talk aviation, but you need to get a nap after your trials and travails. Uh, great seeing you again. We've had you on frequently. We will continue to have you on frequently once you stop traveling all over the country. So in the meantime, while you're uh, matriculating your way to Madison via every other town in America first, let folks know where they can keep up with you and follow you until we get you back on Hertel again, my very, very tired, well-traveled <laughs> Slowly getting back to normal. And uh, I'm eager to talk with you again, Andrew, as always. My Twitter handle is at Ajax, the Griff, A-J-A-X-T-H-E-G-R-I-F-F. And uh, you can also find my latest work, my latest hits uh, at uh, youngvoices.org. And uh, I'm on their advocate page. I'm currently a new contributor, which means I'm a writer and a speaker and a commentator with Young Voices. Uh, and uh, you can find all my latest work there at youngvoices.com on my page. Yep, you do great work. We always enjoy the conversations. Going to do some more long forms with you in 2023. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. We'll talk to you soon, Amanda Griffiths. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you so much, Andrew. You have a wonderful one. You too. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.